coming uh, to the front, unless of course you're from Greenpeace, and I've been told there is no way that you're allowed a seat, so stand at the back, you're not welcome. Here we go, there's still some seats. Okay, well, welcome everyone to Frontline, um, and welcome if you're on Facebook Live and, and watching us um, at Given a Talk. Um, so, and thank you very much to Greenpeace for inviting us all here today. Um, it has been an interesting couple of years for the industry. The, how, the, the way we do journalism is changing, the way we go about what we're doing is changing, the way that we deliver journalism to the people who read it or watch it is changing. And yet despite all of this, weirdly enough, the one bit that seems to have had a resurgence in our trade is the bit that costs the most money, takes the most man hours, and can sometimes lead to absolutely nothing. But for whatever reason, people are putting lots of money into investing in journalism, which is great, well, maybe for the people sitting on this panel, but hopefully for, you know, you guys and the greater good. Some people say that the reason for that is something to do with, with the Leveson Inquiry, when the eyes of the world were on British media, time and again, when they wanted to say, don't judge us, don't put the kibosh on us, don't put more regulation on what we do, because look at these fantastic investigations we lead the world in investigative journalism. I couldn't possibly comment, but I have a fantastic panel with me who could comment. We have people from new media, we have stalwarts of the old guard, we have people who transverse both, and in the middle you have the unbiased Ofcom regulated voice of Channel 4 News who couldn't possibly offer any sort of comment. So, our esteemed panel that we have, in fact, is actually a very esteemed panel, the sort of panel where I don't even have to feign being enthusiastic about what they've done during the course of their career, which is quite rare. So, so, so here we go. Right, from the end we have Rachel Oldroyd, who is the managing editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Hopefully quite a few people will have heard of that. It's a not-for-profit that is doing some amazing things. Since 2009, 10? 2010, let's go with 2010. Sound like an auctioneer. Many people will have first come to terms with uh, the Bureau of Investigation when they did the drone investigation that didn't just make headlines in the UK, it made headlines across the world. And it was out and out labour-intensive journalism that some would argue, if it wasn't for the funding model that the Bureau has, may not have ever happened. It's been a good couple of months for the Bureau as well, front page of the Sunday Times two weeks ago. Half a billion dollars worth of funding given to Bell Possinger to do, basically run a black ops PR campaign for the Pentagon, and then a couple of days later, splash with the Guardian as well. So it's not been a bad couple of days. Next to her, we have Jane Bradley from BuzzFeed, one of the new upstarts here trying to tell us about how good they are and everything they do. Again, it's been a very good week for Jane. Beginning of the week, she got to tell the whole world, along in collaboration with Newsnight, of course, about what Rongans RBS are and how they haven't probably been that great to their customers. Fair? Fair. Fair. I'm with my team. Fair. And if anyone listens to the Media Matters podcast, you've heard a couple of weeks ago Jane's boss on Media Matters describing Jane as, I think, was one of the most tenacious and hardworking young reporters uh, in the country and uh, one of the best people on the doorstep she's ever met. Which is quite high praise indeed. I've We do. Then we have, next to us, we have May. Basically, name a place 
that does anything in the investing journey. The BBC, The Guardian, The Bureau, May's work for them. Now she works for Greenpeace. And I'm, I'm just looking up here the, the awards. We have the Bar Council's Legal Reporting Award, nominated for the Orwell Prize, is currently shortlisted for an Amnesty International Media Award, which frankly is just showing off. <laughs> Since joining Greenpeace, she has exposed US academics taking money to promote fossil fuels, UK government plans to build thousands of homes in floodplains, and oil companies drilling in protected African national parks. Sounds like you've been busy. And then at the end, we have David Lee, who you may have heard of. <laughs> He's a pretty big deal. Who is the former investigations editor at The Guardian, and is now a professor of journalism. I could list the awards, but we'd be here for quite some time. Most recently, 2015, uh, he, was, he and his team were nominated for uh, at the British Press Awards for their investigation into HSBC or their dodgy taxes. Um, so without further ado, you've heard enough from me. I will now pass over to Rachel to give us her take on the state of play. Um, so first of all, I'm going to take
I don't think there's anything different there to what David Lee has been doing all his career. Um, so the only difference is that we're a slightly different model. Instead of being funded by advertising, we're funded by foundations. Um, we're funded a little bit by individuals. Um, we're just a different. We're just trying to find a different model in the U.S. Not-for-profit journalism. It's a sector in itself. There were, in the last count, 150 not-for-profit journalistic organisations operating in the U.S. In the U.K., the Bureau is unique, which I think is a very sad thing. Um, there are a few other journalistic operations that are, are funded by philanthropy, Open Democracy being one, uh, Fourth Act being another. Um, but we probably have less than half a dozen such organisations because we just don't have the philanthropic attitude that the Americans have. Um, I do think that is something that is changing, and certainly um, the Bureau now has nine different funders. We set off with one. We've had to do a lot of educating the funders and explaining to them the importance and power of investigative journalism, to the importance in a democracy, the power to have impact and change. Um, but that message is definitely getting out. And I think as the pressures on old media continue, and for sure they are continuing, because the storm that has hit the media sector in the recent um, few years, which was a storm that had already battered for some time, but the most recent storm is not going away. Invest it's journalism and the money within journalism and within media is not returning. Um, there was a really interesting fact reported quite recently that 85 cents of every dollar that is spent on online advertising currently goes to Facebook and Google. That is money that used to go to the media. That money is not coming back. So we have to find new models. And I think that's what is different about um, the panel here. We have, we're a not-for-profit model. We get our money from foundations. Um, I'm sure everyone else is going to tell you about their models, but that's my take. We don't do anything different. We don't we hire traditional journalists who've been trained um, who've done, who've worked for big organisations, Sunday Times, BBC, The Guardian, they've worked for all those organisations, they're doing the same thing, we're just trying to find a different way of funding it. Anything you want to say? Innovative? Innovative? Yeah, you're <laughs> that's, that's how innovative I am, I can't even work a microphone, and that's my job. <laughs> Ho -ha. Um, thank you very much, Rachel. Jane, anything innovative that you, do, that you guys do? I mean, I kind of echo what Rachel said in that, yes, we're Buzzfeed and we do do some things differently, but at the heart of our investigation teams, we're actually very traditional. We do old things a new way. Um, there's a team of four of us in the UK, um, made up of Heidi Blake, um, from Exit Sunday Times, who did all the FIFA file stuff, Tom Warren from the Bureau, who is amazing at digging out documents, and then um, myself, who's basically good at tracking people down and stalking people. <laughs> um, so we're actually quite a traditional team, even though we use social media and we use obviously a digital platform a lot more than um, other traditional news outlets might do. I would kind of start off by saying overall, I think the state of investigative journalism is actually really good, although I do think its form is changing. So on one hand, you've got kind of traditional media like The Telegraph, like The Guardian, even Channel 4 News, who are really investing in their investigation teams. Um, but on the other hand, got the Guardian who've just effectively cut their entire investigation team, which is very sad, as part of their cost-cutting drive. Um, and you've got traditional heavyweights like Panorama and like Dispatches who are moving 
towards consumer and issue-based documentaries rather than targeting investigations. And that's because they're less risky, they're often cheaper, and they guarantee kind of decent audience figures. Um, and I think there's a reason that new media like BuzzFeed, like campaign groups like Greenpeace and Global Witness are investing in investigative journalism, and that's because of the gap. Um, traditional, traditional media as a whole aren't doing good environmental investigations. There are not enough journalists giving into corruption and dirty money. And as for BuzzFeed, I know a lot of people might be surprised that the cat people are doing investigations. Um, but having spent six years at the BBC and freelancing for like sort of dispatches in your Times, etc., I've never had so much time and so many resources to spend on stories as I have at BuzzFeed. And that's a key thing. It's nothing new we're doing. It's almost going back to you know the, the old hack days to give us the time to really invest in our stories. Um, and BuzzFeed really does do that. It takes investigative journalism really seriously um, and invests in it heavily. In the UK, there are four of us, as I said, on uh, the UK investigations team. Globally, there are 18, 20 including the fellows or interns. Um, so that's a huge investment and commitment into investigative journalism from BuzzFeed, especially considering its overall size. Um, and in the year, just over a year, that I've been at BuzzFeed, um, I've never been pulled off an investigation to work on a daily news story. And we're always told that a good story takes however long a good story takes. And anyone who's worked in any newsroom anywhere knows how rare that is. And that's the best thing you can get from an investigative journalist or anyone who wants to be an investigative journalist because I think there are lots of journalists who work in daily news who could be brilliant investigative journalists but they're just not given the time or resources by their editor. Um, so, so just to sum up, I would say that investigative journalism is always going to be relevant. Um, it's always going to be hugely important to a democratic society. And whoever's doing it, new media or old media, the goal is always the same, and that's to reveal something in the public interest and to hold someone to account. And investigations also win awards, and media organisations really like that. So for those reasons, I think investigative journalism is always going to be around, and it's always going to be invested in in some way. Some of the funding models may differ, um, but it's always going to be around. It's always going to be important, even though its shape might change. Fair enough. Well, that's the view from two people who work for actual journalistic outfits. That's 100% what you do. May, you work for Greenpeace, though, mm -hmm. as an investigative journalist. Yeah. How does that work? What am I doing on the stage? Um, I would say we are very much the new kids, I guess, in this scenario. Again, not because we're using different methods, but because um, we're trying to forge a new path in terms, well, fairly new, in terms of um, NGOs using the resources they have and the experience they have, but using an investigative journalist model and employing investigative journalists to use those techniques to do exactly what investigative journalists around the world do, uncover, hold people to account, um, and shine a light into the dark corners. Um, as Jane already alluded to, there's, you know, there's fantastic environmental journalists out there, there's fantastic investigative journalists out there, many of you guys are in the room. Um, I think the Greenpeace team grew out of a sense that maybe that overlap was a gap that could be filled. If environmental journalists are trying to cover a whole panoply of, of various issues, they might just not have time to do the three months of digging that it takes to get to the bottom of the story. And investigative journalists have hundreds of juicy angles and places to go and might not naturally think of 
doing some of the work that we do. So for about a year now, a little bit over, Greenpeace has had this team of uh, in-house investigators digging away at different stories. Um, we've had our work covered in the New York Times, Le Monde, El Globo, um, Sunday Times, I think all of the publications in the UK, more or less, which had a great story on the common agricultural policy payouts um, on the Today programme. Um, and essentially what we're doing is using the same techniques um, that any investigative journalist would do. Um, part of what really excited me about the job at Greenpeace was this range of toys that we have that maybe not everybody has. So we have one, a kind of global network of experts that can be called on, um, but also you know, boats, drones, satellites, <laughs> uh, all kinds of, we have a Bloomberg terminal in our office that we can use. So uh, beyond the freedom of information, the doorstepping, and the, and the hoping to you know, attract whistleblowers, we also have this great <coughs> range of toys and gadgets. And uh, we have Science Lab, for example, which is very cool. Um, so we're doing all of that. Um, we are trying to present the investigations that we do in a very transparent way, um, because obviously that's always going to be an issue working for what is a campaign organisation, and um, you know proving your credibility of your investigation. And part of that works um, by collaborating with expert journalists um, and showing them everything that we've got and letting them make their own decision on whether the story's there. Uh, part of it is we have our own uh, news platform called Energy Desk, where we publish stories, and within that we often publish all the FOIs we have, all the data that we have, so people can interrogate and make up their own minds about whether they feel it's, um, you know, it's as nails as we think it is. Um, and then we just, you know, we most of the team have come from a background in journalism, so we do all the usual things of going to people for right of reply and making sure there's that balance in the stories and making sure that if the story isn't there, we don't publish. Uh, because goodness knows, if anyone's going to go after anyone, I think people are going to be waiting to pick our stories apart and try and take them down if they're not 100% <laughs> credible. Um, so in some ways, we have really high bar in terms of uh, being transparent and getting it right. Um, and it's an exciting model. I mean, other NGOs have been doing similar things. Global Witness, I think there's some people here who've been doing amazing stuff like that. Um, lots of NGOs have obviously always done investigations and research in some form. What we're trying to do differently is go at it as an investigative journalist would with the hypothesis, but always with the new story in mind and, and going at it that way. So not making a stodgy 200-page report but hopefully at the end of it, coming out with something on the Today programme, uh, front page of Le Mans, whatever it might be. Um, so it's an exciting new model. We've been around for, yeah, like I say, about a year and a half, um, and learning as we go, but fun times. I want to fight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Dave, what do you take for your... Um, well, I'm not the Newton on the block, I'm the old guy on the block. Um, so let me try and be a little bit historical about all this. Um, all these developments actually go back much longer than you would think. I think the first time I got involved with one of these collaborative relationships with a non-profit was as far back as 1999, 70 years ago. And that was when the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, which is based in Washington, got off the ground. And the idea then was, <clears throat> they were a US nonprofit. 
They recruited a bunch of uh, investigative journalists from all over the world and set them to work on a big pile of data. In those days, back in the Middle Ages, the big pile of data was a big pile of paperwork in a building in Guildford belonging to British Labour and Tobacco. Things have got a bit more, more electronic since. Uh, and it worked. And we were able to expose uh, the criminality behind a lot of VAT's activities. Um, since then, back in the Middle Ages, I've watched and been involved in a shift, a flowering uh, of the relationship between, well, what Julian Assange and WikiLeaks used always calls the MSM, the mainstream media, uh, and the new, the new kids on the block. Traditionally, conventional journalists didn't like partnering with nonprofits uh, and indies and freelancers, you know. The ideal relationship from the point of view of a conventional journalist was that the nonprofit would be a source uh, who you would, in the worst cases, you take all their material, pretty well steal it, give them some kind of minor, marginal, grudging credit just to steam off. Um, in terms of trade now altered, uh, there are now all these nonprofits and all these indies uh, out in the world, and they are able to negotiate, sometimes dictate, partnerships, which is a different kind of thing in which you work with that organization, and we've seen, you know, Greenpeace, BuzzFeed, uh, the Bureau, they can get themselves, the, the ICIJ, uh, they can get themselves credited as partners and work as partners. Um, and this is great. Um, if you ask why it's happened, um, I think there are two reasons. Um, one, which is the obvious reason, is the financial collapse of the business models of conventional journalism, which has made uh, them uh, relate to anybody who's prepared to spend a lot of money and do a lot of work, relate to them <laughs> gratitude rather than suspicion and hostility. Um, and the other reason is the obvious, equally obvious technological one, that with the coming of the internet, online journalism has become possible and richly possible for many more people. The barriers to doing this stuff are much lower. You don't need to buy a printing press. You can, you can do the work and put it online. So, you know, we see the technology facilitating lots more people being able to do stuff and do really rich and, uh, and interesting stuff. Um, but I would just like to say a couple of negative things. Um, and, and one is that um, these kind of outfits are fragile. Um, Although they do innovative things and they've got innovative models, um, I, I'm not convinced that um, all of them are going to survive. Um, it's possible to screw up. We saw this year, for example, Exaro, which was a model of a, an investigative outfit that, that thought it was going to have a commercial model. Made a lot of waves, uh, built up stories about VIP sex abuse, which all turned out to be hooey. And the June, July shutdown, and the uh, editor in chief, so Stan, got fired. End of story. So if you screw up um, when you're one of these indies or a non profit, it can be disastrous. You know, mainstream media screw up all the time. Uh, there was a long, humiliating apology in The Guardian the other day about train gate to describe how they've got everything all wrong about the story of Jeremy Corbyn sitting uh, at the floor of the train. 
so many times around Hitler's, Hitler's diaries a few years ago, uh, which were fake from start to finish. They survived that just as the Guardian survives it because they're big organizations. You're a little indie, whether you're a non-profit or whether you're trying to develop a commercial model like BuzzFeed, you screw up in one big way and you can be finished. I think you all saw um, Gorky has been closed down in America. I'm not holding it up as a, a virtuous example of <coughs> investigative journalism, but you saw how one big lawsuit could fold it. So you always got to be aware, aware of that. Um, and this is the reason, this fragility, why is, is why you will see that all these little ideas end up partnering with mainstream media. Uh, I mean, it's something I'm very much in favor of because that way you find a big brother who can, who can take the hits for you. Uh, but it means it's quite difficult to function on your own and quite difficult to be dangerous. So, you know, I'm not convinced that all this, these flowers that have bloomed are going to survive or that they can last forever or that they can survive the inevitable turbulence and screw-ups that you get sometimes. That said, it's great. Chaos <laughs> 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 go. That is, that is on there. Okay, well that gives a good starting off point. Rachel, how fragile are you? Are you going to survive? I think, I think it's a really good point that David made, actually. And, you know, the sector for sure, it's very fragile. It's very fragile because um, the business model isn't proved. Um, so, you know, while the Bureau is doing very well raising money at the moment, you know, who's to say that that money is going to be around tomorrow? So, you know, the business model is not proved. Um, David's point about the fact that um, you get hit by a big lawsuit, and that could be the end of you. I mean, you know, if you... Libel has changed quite a bit in this country now, so um, it is much harder for big organisations to, to sue um, journalists and journalistic organisations, but nonetheless, even just fighting a lawsuit could be hugely damaging. Um, and this has happened to, to US organisations, not profits. Um, Martha Jones put out a huge appeal uh, last year because they were hit by a massive big lawsuit that was going to sink them. I think it was um, over 100 million US dollars. So, um, you know, that sort of money is really difficult to swallow if you're not for profit. Um, so yeah, it's an incredibly fragile sector. That, do, that doesn't say, that's not to say that it's not a sector that um, we shouldn't be encouraging, that um, if you're in old media, you shouldn't be partnering with, um, that um, we shouldn't be proud as developing and flowering and blossoming. Um, how does it work though? Like how far in advance are you guys worrying about paying the bills? Like how far in advance do you guys financially forecast it? Is it we run completely as a proper business. So we have um, a very long-term financial plan. We have our budgets, you know, I've just finalised my 2017 budget. Um, I have a budget for 2018, just as any good, well-run, you know, organisation has. Um, I know where my gaps are, just as um, a newspaper predicting its budget for the next year will know where, what it's got to try and raise from advertising to, to run the, um, the business. So... You know, we run like a business. It's just that our money, our income, comes from donations. But you can predict your donations. I mean, we one of the hardest things, actually, as a, a not-for-profit, and this is one of the, the, the hardest things that the US sector finds, is actually getting core funding. So it's very easy to go out and say, um, look, guys, we've done this amazing work. It's been in the New York Times, in the LA Times, in Dawn, in um, the Sunday Times, and the BBC. We've done this amazing project about drones. It's really important. It's had huge impact. Um, it's an unseen, untransparent war that's happening in very remote countries. Um, you guys um, support these, 
this, this type of thing, why don't you give us money? It's very much easier to raise money for a specific area of investigation. And um, I think that is slightly problematic because then you become um, attached to a story that you have to keep running for a certain period of time, even if the story runs out. You know, you've got to stay <coughs> on because you've got money for it. So, you know, the, the, the problem for the not-profit sector is that we've got to convince foundations to give us core funding and to just trust that we are going to find the right stories in the public interest um, that are valuable and not specifically on a button that a foundation wants to press. Um, but this is a message, as, as David said, you know, not-for-profit journalism has been around for over two decades in the US. CIR, which is one of the biggest, they have now 70 journalists. Um, they, you know, they are probably the biggest investigation team in the US. Um, I think they're bigger than ProPublica. Um, they have a budget of 12 million US dollars a year. Um, and they've been going for 25 years. You know, I mean, that's, that's quite a long time now. Um, and they have been getting, organizations like that have been getting messages out to big foundations about the need to support at core rather than project. And certainly we're starting to see that we're getting a lot more um, foundations sort of understanding that. But, you know, I mean, it is fragile. So, anyway, so it looks like funding isn't a problem for you guys. Um, you two hear from new new media. I've been to both of Ross's, doesn't look like you're having any problems with it. But it's a very different prospect of someone coming to uh, a journalist saying, right, we're Greenpeace, or we're BuzzFeed, we're Newsweek, we want you to be our investigations, we want you to be our investigation reporters. What are the risks for you guys? What do you think when someone offers you that job? Is it a clear sell? Yes, I'll take it straight away. Or what, what do you think before you say yes? I'll put that one to Jane first. I think for us it's actually the opposite way around. I'm thinking often Dave are making really interesting points about collaboration. Because we are in a relatively new outfit, especially compared to the likes of the BBC or The Guardian or whoever, we are still growing our brand, and investigations in particular is new. Me and my team have only been around for um, the last just over a year. So we don't yet have the gravitas of the BBC, of the Guardian, of those Sunday Times. So when we've spent months on investigation and we've funneled in all this money and all this time, we want the investigation to go everywhere. We want to impact you, whether that's through headlines, whether that's through action, whatever. And we've found that just putting it out by ourselves doesn't always, in fact, often doesn't get that impact. So our most successful investigations, we've teamed up, mostly with the BBC on it, um, sometimes the Washington Post. Um, so our tennis match fixing story, which made international headlines, parliamentary inquiry, that was a collaboration with the BBC. Um, unmasking half of Jihadi John's ISIS cell, that we collaborated with the Washington Post. And just our RBS story just out this week, we collaborated with Newsnight on that. Now, on certainly the two stories we collaborated with the BBC on, to be honest, we did all the work on that. Like, we found the story, <laughs> we got the documents, we got the voices, and we went, so with RBS this week, we went to the BBC a couple of weeks ago and said, we've got these documents, we've got these documents. you said that, safe from the knowledge that the people at Newsnight are now busily preparing their shows <laughs> yes. this evening, so we're not watching this. I will talk about how great Newsnight were on the other side of things. So we, we did have the story, though. We'd spent nearly on and off nine months, eight months on it, and we went to the BBC a few weeks ago on it. Um, and we've done kind of, we've got gathered all the prima facie, the evidence for it, and had the people ready to film. Um, but if we'd put that complex financial story out by ourselves, I don't think it would have got the pickup it got having teamed up with the BBC because 
Buzz being put out an investigation, it's still quite new, nobody trusts it. It's not like when the BBC puts out an investigation, we'd be like, oh, it's the BBC, it's going to be thorough, it's going to be accurate. So um, by teaming up with Newsnight, we're brilliant on it. Once we teamed up with them and credited us, and we worked really well as a team, we got every, every um, national paper um, to pick up, pretty much every national paper to pick up on the story. It made headlines everywhere, it was debated um, before the Treasury Select Committee, and um, we needed the BBC to do that because it's got the gravitas that we don't have as a new organisation. But the BBC also needed us, and mainstream media also needed us, because we've got the resources, we've got the journalists with the specialism, the ability to really spend time and dig into these complex um, documents and get these whistleblowers to talk and all the rest. We, we, could, we have the ability to invest eight months into this story. Um, and we also reach an audience that mainstream media has often struggled to meet. Um, so we, BuzzFeed basically, um, basically engages with 60% of 18 to 34 year olds, millennials, in the UK, out of the whole population. That is a huge percentage, and something that mainstream media, I know coming from the BBC, struggles and struggles to get. So we're not in competition with them, in a way. We're reaching an audience they would not normally reach. Um, you have veered heavily onto a sales pitch for BuzzFeed <laughs> <laughs> from a conversation that started with, when they say to you, will you take the job, what do you say? <laughs> well, no one comes to us with the story yet, because we're new, so no one comes, like, we've not had anyone come to us and say, um, we've got this story, will you collaborate with us? It's always been, so far, the other way around, where we'll have a story and go to somebody else, because I imagine like Greenpeace or other new organisations, we've not yet got that reputation. Yeah that mainstream media. We will come back to collaborations in a minute. We'll move to May quickly. Mm -hmm. So when Greenpeace comes to you and say, right, I want to bring you on, yeah. you'll be our investigative journalist, what's the sell? What do they say to you? What's the... Yeah. Do they, do they, do you just can't stories, or...? Well, sorry, I mean, it, it has been an experiment. You're going to be judged now, because half your colleagues... It was an experiment, and, and um, you know, the team had started before I joined, and they'd done some really good stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I guess there was this opportunity, all these toys that I've mentioned, you know, potential there. Um, and the challenge of it, I think, because there are challenges, much like Jane said, you know, people aren't going to come to us with a huge cache of documents, and, or, or well, I mean, it'd be lovely if they did, if anybody wants to, but they haven't. Um, so, and similarly, phoning people up for an off-the-record chat, as someone calling from Greenpeace, they're going to know what your angle is much more than if you were the New York Times and they would have no clue. So you can't really talk off the record to a nice oil tycoon without them being pretty wary about what you're talking about. Um, but all of those I thought were interesting challenges to take on um, inside this kind of exciting project of having all of these potential angles, looking at an area that just isn't being uh, scrutinized to the extent that it should be. Um, but yeah, there were challenges. Partly collaboration, um, partly kind of swallowing ego, and I also work part-time as a, a freelance journalist, so I spent half my time desperately fighting to make sure my byline is on and that, you know, that I'm up there, and then the other time giving all my work away <laughs> to other people and being like, that's mine, you, you put your name on it if you want. Um, so there was that kind of that to, to, to deal with. But essentially, if you're like proud of the work and excited about the things you're finding, I think all of that is a small price to play for doing interesting stuff and growing as a journalist. Anyway. Well, we've all 